it's James 101, which is the thing that you're most insecure about is actually your power. So speak it, you know, it, it can never be overstated that he invented the brand of James Murphy as we know it by talking about being over the hill. 93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hyden. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Today, we are going to be talking about LCD Sound System. They're back. They put out a record last Friday called American Dream. Um, I have a review of it on uprocks.com. At least I am assuming I have a review up there. You see, I'm recording this intro before I've actually written the review. So I'm in the past, but I'm actually in the future from where I am right now. So, yeah, I think the review is there. We're going to assume the, you know, that the review is there and, you know, and that I didn't like heal over and die before I got to write it. So the review is there. I actually don't know what I'm going to say about the record yet. I'm still absorbing it. <laughs> I'm still figuring it out. Um, I know I like it and I know, um, I know it's a really emotional record in a lot of ways. And, you know, I'm definitely one of those people that was sort of annoyed when they came back. I hate to say, like, I like it when bands I like come back and I don't begrudge anyone from saying, hey, these festivals are offering me a ton of money. I'm going to take it and do a bunch of other shows like that. Um, But, you know, when you do the Madison Square Garden show and then you have the big documentary and James Murphy's crying at the end... It's like, uh, I'm glad you're back, but I'm going to have to make jokes about this for a long time. You know, you're going to have to get grilled James Murphy for this. Um, but, you know, when, when they put out some of these early singles from American Dream called The Police, and of course the title track, and then, you know, they were on Saturday Night Live. I mean, the band is great. <laughs> I mean, they delivered. They killed on SNL. And the songs that they've put out have been great. And, and like I said, the album is really good. And I know I'm going to have more to say about that when I actually write my review, which will be posted by the time this podcast goes up. My guest for today, I'm very excited, it's Lizzie Goodman. She is the author of the book, Meet Me in the Bathroom. It's an oral history of New York music in the 2000s. If you listen to this podcast, I'm guessing you're familiar with this book. We actually had an episode where we discussed this book already. I had Harmar Superstar on. We, We talked about the Strokes and Interpol and Karen O and all this cool stuff. But uh, I'm really happy to finally have Lizzie on. I wanted to have her on before, but everyone wants to interview Lizzie Goodman right now because Meet Me in the Bathroom is the rock book of 2017. Everyone is talking about it, and she's been a busy person. But, you know, we've been in contact. She finally had some time, and, and there's a lot in her book about James Murphy and DFA Records and the beginnings of LCD Sound System. So this seemed like a good opportunity to talk to her as an expert about James Murphy and, and sort of his history and how he got to this point. So that's what this episode is. We're going to be talking a lot about the background of LCD Sound System, about James Murphy. We get into sort of the psychology of James Murphy. We psychoanalyze him a little bit. Um, and, you know, Lizzie is such a smart, insightful person, and she's a great journalist, and she's interviewed everyone in that scene. So she was a great person to talk to about this. And I'm excited to share that conversation. Before we get to that, I want to tell you about one of our sponsors for this week's episode, and it is our old friend at Harry's. Now, I am a guy with a beard, but I still have to shave every day, every other day, because I have to shave the stuff around the beard. I have to make sure that the beard is well-framed so that I don't look like Grizzly Adams or some sort of like crazy psychopathic killer. So I go through a lot of razors, and you know, buying razors can be pretty annoying because you know a lot of razors are they're 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 not well made or they're too expensive or you know just shaving in general is, it can be sort of a pain in the neck. But with Harry's, it's such a good product, and it's really affordable. For listeners of this podcast, I I have a special deal for you guys. Now, all you have to do is go to Harry's.com/backslash/rock, and there you can sign up to get a free trial shave set. For free, and all you have to do is pay for shipping. Again, you just go to harrys.com backslash rock, and you get the trial shave set. Now, what is in that set? You get the razor handle, you get the blades, you get the lathering shave gel, you get a travel blade cover, which sounds really cool. I'm not exactly sure what that is, but I'm sure it's awesome. This is a great way to kind of get to know the product, and all you have to do is pay for shipping. It's a very kind of low uh, stress thing here. So again, just go to harrys.com backslash rock, 
Again, that's harrys.com backslash rock, and you can get these razors for very little money. Okay, so me and Lizzie, we talked about James Murphy, and uh, like I said, you know, she basically interviewed every significant person involved in New York rock music in the 2000s. So she didn't just talk to James Murphy, she talked to all the people at DFA Records, she talked to people in LCD Sound System, and she really knows what she's talking about. She's like one of the experts on this scene, so she seemed like the perfect person to talk to as we, you know, as we all start listening to American Dream and soaking in this record and figuring out if it fits with the other three LCD Sound System records. So without further ado, here is me and Lizzie Goodman talking about James Murphy and LCD Sound System. So Lizzie, before we begin, I feel like I have to congratulate you here because you wrote the rock book of 2017. <laughs> so congratulations okay. on that. I feel Thank like you. I feel like That's you've, not true. It is true. <laughs> this, you, you know, look, I know what it's like to write a book and, and then to ha- you know, try to make people interested in it and talking about it. And I mean, you spent so much time on this book and there's so much good material in it and you know, people are gonna gravitate to it anyway, but it really is a big deal when you can write a book that actually you know, people wanna talk about and has an impact and you really do- you've really done that. So you well, know, kudos are in order you. for that. Um, I appreciate that, really. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I wanna- before we get, you know, because you know, we, we're going to talk about James Murphy and LCD Sound System, and, and James Murphy, of course, is a big character in your book, and I'm interested in kind of getting your thoughts on his background and his history. But before we get to that, I want to ask like a big picture question here, because I know that you are a native of New Mexico, and mm-hmm. you moved to New York, I think, like for college? Exactly. Or yeah. so. And I imagine that, you know, when you were growing up, you know, New York was probably this sort of shining city on a hill type place, like a very exciting place. I'm sure you listened to music from New York and saw movies in New York and it was a really exciting place for you as a kid to think about and, you know, to live in one day. And, you know, now, you know, I, you don't live in the city anymore, right? Like, do you live in upstate New York now? Right. I moved upstate um, kind of in, in, uh, out of necessity based on finishing the book. I couldn't really seem to finish it while living in the city itself. So yeah, I live upstate now. So, you know, just, just reflecting on, you know, that kid that you used to be that dreamt about New York and romanticized New York, and now you're an adult and you've lived a life and you've talked to all these musicians and you wrote this book. What are your feelings about New York now versus then? Do you still have that romantic vision of the city or has that been tempered a bit by the reality of, of just living a life and being a grown up? Yeah, it's a really good question. Well, first of all, I'm definitely not a grown up. Like, there's no <laughs> illusions about that. So we can we can we can cut that out of the equation immediately. Um, a slightly older you know, kid, then, like a little bit of an older kid. We'll say that. You, let's just call it arrested. That's what it is. <laughs> I know. I I mean, it's funny because I do. I kind of do subscribe to the theory that New York. The the nice way of saying it is it keeps you young, but the truth is it sort of keeps you tethered to a youthful. Uh, tethered or freed, depending on how you look at it, to a kind of useful uh, sensibility and sense of how life should be. So I still, you know, I stay up late still. Like I'm not like a, even upstate, my life is kind of, I still feel like my rhythm is that of a New Yorker, whether, no matter where I go. Um, But I mean, to answer your question, I think my relationship with the city has certainly changed over the years and, and growing up, I definitely had, I mean, I write, I write about this in the introduction to the book, but I had a cutout of the city skyline on uh, my ceiling. It was like, you know, little photos from magazines of guys and bands that I had crushes on and then New York and the guys and bands, I can't even remember who they are anymore, but New York remains. It's sort of the great, the great crush object of my life in that way. And I think that doesn't fade in that the, what animates me, the things that still drive me to, to, to create stuff that make me want to kind of write and go to shows and look at art and see movies. The things that drive me are still connected to that romantic notion of, New York City, but it's not really a place. It's an idea. And I think that when I was younger, it was more literal. It was like, I have to get to that skyline. Like, I got to put my body (laughs) in that (laughs) space. Um, And kind of absorbing the grime and the, 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 the sort of twinning of that grime and the possibility that comes with it. Like, the, it's sort of a a glittering 
dirt, <laughs> dirtiness. <laughs> that was what I was chasing, and I needed it to be a literal thing. And now I feel like I carry that with me wherever I go. So it's not really so much a place as a notion that still is very much at the center of what I do and what I am and how I think of myself, but isn't, I don't have to be there um, to have it. You know, one thing that I've always found fascinating about New York and New Yorkers, and to be honest, I also find it maddening about New York and New Yorkers. And this is true of a lot of the characters in your book is this sort of dichotomy that exists where on one hand, there's a chauvinism about New York, this idea that if, it really matters it's going to happen here. Like, this is where you come to be great, you know, and we're more important than the rest of the country, that idea. And then on the other hand, there's also seems to be this nostalgia that people have where New York was always better 15 to 20 years ago. You know? <laughs> yeah. And that's, that was totally. true. You know, the people in this book, they heard it about the 70s and the, you know, maybe even the 80s. And now I, saw, I read an interview with James Murphy recently where he was talking about how in 2000 it was kind of special, but now in New York it's, you know, it's too expensive and it's you know not the way it used to be. Do you fall into that at all? Do you have any of those feelings about New York where either you feel like it has that kind of special, you know, this is where you come to be special, or do you fall into that thing of like, well, it was great then, but now it, it, it's not as good? I, I definitely don't. I try hard not to indulge the latter. And in fact, <laughs> in the reporting of the book or in the writing of the book, when that, when that criticism or it's not really crit- when that sort of that pose of, of nostalgia, the crankiness would get rendered. I, there was a period of time where the draft of the book had a lot more of that in it. Um, and <laughs> partially because it was, you know, a thousand pages at that point. So it was sort of like, wow, I should probably cut some stuff partially ver- by virtue of necessity of like the form and needing to make it readable and short enough that people would actually read. I mean, this is actually the short version, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> I cut a lot of that, but also because when you, one of the good things about one of the best things about like, I'm a big believer in limitations in, in art. So like the fact that you have to uh, get it under a certain page count or word count or, you know, the fact that you have a deadline, those are limitations that usually help you. And one of the things that that made me do, or I sort of had this big monstrosity that indulgently had everything I thought might be interesting in it, but I needed to cut it. It sort of forces you to take a, a kind of to take each piece of the story out of the book and examine it on its own merits and ask yourself, like, what work is this piece of the story doing for me? Like, why is this here? And to kind of make each theme justify itself. And um, that theme didn't make the cut because yeah. it's not it's not just because it's boring to read about, although it is, but because I actually don't think, and I think James has said this to me too, I, it doesn't really serve. It's not true. Like it's it's true in that like you do feel that way inherently. There's a sense of kind of oh my own. This is different from how it was, and in some ways it's obviously worse. And so that's a real feeling. But it's not. It's not true in that in the way you just described that that's that's the case that that is right in its own way. Like that's the case for every particular moment. Someone is going to think that it's less good than it was before. And what that's really a, a kind of articulation of, a reflection of, is just that time passes and that people who weren't in charge become in charge and that shifts, you know? So so to answer your larger question, I think the the central the central point is really that we we move beyond the the era of our own youth and that's right. You know, like we move right. it's 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 temporary by design and it should be. And I think James or any of the other people who articulate versions of that in the book would have do and have said the same thing, which is like, you know, do I know where all the cool clubs are in New York city right now? I absolutely do not. And I should not actually. And whether they're there or not, I, I wouldn't be the one to ask, you know, <laughs> like I wouldn't be the one to ask. Um, and just one more thing about that is there's a line in the book. I think it's Stuart Lupton from Jonathan Fireater that says it where he's like, he says, we were, everyone, he's talking about the Max Fish era of the Lower East Side. And he says, you know, there was nostalgia. And then he's like, nostalgia for an hour ago, you know? And I think one other thing that's sort of in a separate lane of responding to this question that's worth pointing out is that nostalgia itself is, especially for musicians and artists, and at least especially for the period of time that I'm covering and the way it felt to me to live there, is its own, like, 
contemporary drug. Like you are feeling a sense of nostalgia for the very experiences that you're having. Like I can remember feeling like walking down the Lower East Side in a certain moment or walking to go see Interpol at Mercury Lounge with Sarah Lewitin and like whoever else was in our crew that night and like what I was wearing and how the air would have felt and how it just the whole alchemy of that moment and thinking I am contemporaneously aware <laughs> that this moment has resonance beyond the sort of uh, beyond the sum of its parts. Oh, and yeah. So anyway, I also think that's an important point to note out to point out that like nostalgia in the lives of the lunatics who tend to make this kind of work that we all then care about is happening <laughs> in real time as well. I think that's a great point. I mean, I, as soon as you told that Interpol story, it just made me think of myself at 23, 24, going to shows and feeling in the moment like, oh yeah, I got to remember this for 20 years from now because this is a big deal, you know, right. and, and just wanting it to be significant, you know, because I, exactly. that's a time yeah. of your life that you're in. Like when you're 23, 24, you either want to be, a, you either want to witness the beginning of something or the ending of something, <laughs> exactly. you know, the, yeah. the, the world's either beginning or the world is ending, you know, it's the yeah. apocalypse. Sometimes both in the same night, <laughs> it feels like. <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about James Murphy. I mean, you, you wrote this book. There's so many great characters in the book. You really, you know, you, you wrote sort of the defining work of this era of New York rock music. Thank where, you. Where do you put James Murphy, I guess, in that context, in that pantheon? You know, I mean, obviously he is, you know, in this moment, he is one of the most high-profile musicians of that time. You know, he has you know, this new LCD sound system records coming out. Uh, uh, or I guess when this pod posts, it'll be, it, it will have just come out. Um, right. You know, he's, he's definitely, you know, sort of the most prominent guy right now or one of the most prominent people, I guess, speculating, like going ahead, like 10, 15, 20 years when we, when we talk about this era, where do you think he's going to fall in terms of like the important musicians of this, uh, of this era? I mean, pretty big. I think I can't speak to the future, sadly. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that this is what I can say about that. When I decided to write the book, there were, you know, I think basically three people that I was like, I can't do this without them. Um, so, you know, you go and you, I sold this book on spec. I hadn't written anything. I wrote a very long proposal, but I hadn't interviewed anybody, you know, and then you have to go and deliver on what you promised. And when I was attempting to do that, the, the sort of, targets on the dartboard, the must-gets, were Julian, Karen O, and James. Um, and I think that, the, so that should give you a sense of sort of how primary I think his, he, not just him, like it's not really his story, it's kind of what he represents. I mean, all of those people are important in their individual stories as well, but it's also the broader kind of articulations of, of it's the way in which they're, stories lead to all the other stories, you know? So like, if you want to talk about, um, th this period of time you ha in music, you have to talk about the way that dance music and rock and roll became, uh, merged. I mean, that rock and roll was allowed to be danceable again, and that dance music was dirtier and sexier and darker than it, than it had been that those two lanes didn't, didn't seem so separate anymore. Um, and the genesis of that is really DFA. And so to so James is like this hugely important character in that he's one of the only people in the story that has kind of was in was on the ground floor for all three of the main eras that get covered, which is in my mind it's pre pre nine eleven New York City, like nineties New York as a kind of prequel, and then the rise of all these bands in the early part of the two thousands and then the transition to kind of the global exporting of Brooklyn as an idea of the invention of Brooklyn and then the exporting of that idea. James is like a key foundational character in all three of those stories. So his story is primarily important, but it's also the way that if you follow his story, it connects to all these other broader themes about the shifting face of, of music culture and of the city itself during that period of time. So huge. Uh, in terms of his relevance long-term, like I think, <laughs> I, I would just say, don't ever count that guy out, right? Like the, <laughs> this, the fact that he's a, been able to, look, this is a person who thought that he was washed up and wasn't going to get to, had given up on his dreams of rock stardom at 30 and wrote a song that 
launched his career as a rock star that was about being, you know, over the hill. Like that's how he started this whole charade. Um, so his, which is to say that his ability to be nimble in the face of the shifting terrain of pop culture is pretty much unprecedented. Now you just used the word charade, which I thought was interesting. And, and this is <laughs> sorry, sort of, James, I and, didn't mean it. Well, this is something that you know people talk about in the DFA sections of your book. That on one hand they they talk about James being this sort of. I guess, disagreeable person. There, there is a word that someone else uses that I won't quote here. The C word that was applied to him in one, in one section. Um, uh, well, you know, they're, they're, people from the UK are allowed to fling that word around in a different way than we are. It's allowed. Um, exactly. But yes, I know what you mean. I do. I know what you're referring to. <laughs> and I mean, to what degree is the James Murphy that we know now, I mean, do you look at that as a character versus the, way, the guy that he was in the early 2000s? I mean... You know, to really answer that, I'd have to know him, and I don't. You know, it's important to say that. Like, I wrote this book, and I interviewed all these people, and I know, but I know, and I, so therefore I know all of them in a professional context, but in a personal context, I only know a couple of them, and James is not one of them. So it's not like we hang out or we're hanging out in 2003. So I can't speak to his sort of, like, actual personal character. But I think, I mean, having said that, I will say I think – one of the things that most impresses me about James is his awareness and that surprised me, to be honest, because in the reporting of the book, it's his awareness, his self-awareness. Like I interviewed, there's, let's, let's, let's say this, there's a lot of big swaggery uh, personas in this book. And if you're a music journalist or basically a journalist of any kind in entertainment, as you know, like you meet a lot of those types of people and they're very charismatic and they're all often very thin skinned as well. And James is both in my experience interviewing him and also, you know, sort of interacting with him offline around the book, both. I mean, he did my event in New York, my launch event in New York, which is just unbelievably generous of him and, and, and indicative of what I'm about to say. He is both that thing. He's both like larger than life and a huge personality and incredibly thin skinned. And he's also completely aware of the fact that that's how he is. And so that gives him a kind of power in that he's able to be weirdly measured about his own lunacy, if that makes sense. So my favorite, one of my favorite stories in the book is where in the section, I believe you're talking about where there's a lot of people kind of talking about how difficult he can be. He's in there talking about how difficult he can be. Like, you know, he tells this great story about having found a tape of himself in band rehearsal when he was, you know, in Princeton, New Jersey or wherever he was at the time when he was like 13 and just, you know, fooling around in the basement with other kids making music for fun. And like, this is not rehearsing for Saturday Night Live or anything like that. This is just James and his pals, like making rock and roll in the garage. And he, he tells this story. Like he chooses to tell this. He's like, on the tape, I'm already like, okay, let's do it again. Guys, one more time. That wasn't good. You know, and he's, he, he describes his own voice as trying to be chill and trying to kind of be like, no, it's no big deal. Let's just do that again. But he's already like riding them, like annoyed that it wasn't perfect and trying to get his like 13-year-old like stoner pals to to kind of toe the line in the non-studio in the basement in New Jersey in, you know, the 80s or whatever. And he tells that story as an indication of his own awareness of what it's like to work with him. And he's basically like, yeah, that's me, you know? Um, so this is all to say that I would, I would argue that that's part of his gift is his ability to be both that, that caricature of rock persona and also someone who is, is kind of in charge or if not in charge, at least, in, uh, at least aware of the permutations of that guy and not therefore victimized by that persona or, or sort of surprised by other people's reaction to that persona. All right. We're going to get back to me and Lizzie talking about LCD sound system here in a moment, but uh, I just want to tell you about one of our sponsors for this week, and it is our old friends at SeatGeek. Buying tickets to sports and concerts can be complicated, but there is a better, simpler way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to live events. With SeatGeek's seamless mobile experience, you can buy and sell tickets in just two taps. 
SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action at face value. Now, I am going to see you two on the Joshua Tree Tour the day after my birthday on September 8th. Uh, I'm really excited. This tour looks amazing, and uh, I wanted to make sure I got good seats. So I went to SeatGeek. You know, I had the app on my phone, and uh, it was super easy and convenient, and I got perfect tickets, and I'm really excited about it. Uh, I really think you guys, are, you know, are going to want to try this out. I know you guys go to a lot of concerts. So as a sort of an extra incentive to try this out, download the SeatGeek app and enter in the promotion code CELEBRATION, and you will get $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. That's right. This deal is just for listeners of this podcast only. Just go to the app, enter in CELEBRATION, get the $20 off, get amazing seats, have a great time. And never say I didn't hook you up. All right, let's get back to me and Lizzie talking about LCD sound system. Do you think that ambition is what separated him maybe from some of the other, you know, sort of big New York rock stars at that time? Because, you know, it seems to be his ambition. And also, yeah, I mean, because in my memory, and I know this isn't exactly right, but I always think of LCD sound system as being sort of like the post strokes and Interpol band no that is right i think that's right i mean timeline-wise it's right timeline i mean there's i mean i know it's like maybe like 2002 or so so there's some overlap but like i just think of like the like interpol and the strokes having such a great sort of defined stylish visual aesthetic and then you have james murphy who did not have that he was like a regular guy sort of yeah and it seemed like, okay, I'm, I mean, do you think that was like a reaction almost to those other bands or was he just older and he didn't care? Well, he, no, he definitely cares. I mean, he says it, he says it's, it's for him, it's a little bit more the rapture and weirdly Fisher Spooner because he was just like, you gotta be kidding me. You know, like there was a response to, but James says full on that like the number, you know, among the, his primary motivators is kind of creative revenge. Um, so one of the things that's covered in detail in the book is the relationship, DFA, DFA's relationship with the Rapture and that the Rapture had been sort of cast by James as the band, the rock band that was going to do what DFA wanted to do, which was to promote dirty, sexy rock and roll that also was informed by really rigorous scholarship in the dance world, which he offered and which... Tim Goldsworthy offered. I mean, that was the that was the great marriage of Tim and James was this sense of kind of American indie rock and uh, and 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 record store clerk ultimate nerdiness blending <laughs> with the same iteration of that from the UK, and that's their magic, that's their love affair. And it was like from James's perspective, they forged that they were producing records, and it was like cool. And he says, he says Luke Jenner was going to be my rock star. That was going to be my sort of uh, emissary, if you will, to go out into the, the broader pop culture and, and compete with the likes of the Strokes or yeah, 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 or Interpol. And he says that. And then when, when Luke left him, <laughs> this is the language these guys use. It's so, it's like, it's so deliciously soapy, you know, when they, when they had their falling out, um, it, it was basically like, okay. I mean, he says, he's like, so I was like, fine, then I'm going to take you down. Like I'm going to, his, his, his sort of rock star persona was resurrected in the ashes of the relationship with, with the rapture and was, was uh, motivated by revenge, you know, like legit, that's what happened. And I think the Fisher Spooner piece is just that he heard that this kind of art band that was basically in some ways a comment on the uh, potential artificialness of music and of that culture was signing million dollar record deals. Like that made him be like, are you kidding me? Like, let's go. So I think, (laughs) I think that is, that's what James would speak to himself. Broadly, I would say that this is something that doesn't apply just to him. I would say it also applies to someone like Jack White um, and to a lesser extent, even Interpol. It's not just the age difference between those guys. Like the Interpol guys are the same age as the Strokes, basically, but they'd been at it a long time. Um, one of the advantages Jack White says he has, and I think this is true, this is also true for James, is over some of those younger bands, and particularly over the Strokes, is time 
making records that nobody cares about. Yeah. So when you log, when you make the two first White Stripes albums in like Detroit while you're like upholstering chairs on the side and like, <laughs> you know, sort of you're a, you're a struggling artist and you make albums that good and they don't do anything because nobody, the world is not, the ground is not sort of like fertile enough for that kind of, it's just not receptive. The world is not receptive at that point. You are forced to kind of develop a different relationship with your art. There's a kind of grittiness, a sense of like a sense of, a sense of commitment that I think gets forged, a sense of identity that gets forged in secret. It's not in secret on purpose. It's in like accidental secret. Like it's in the dark against your will, but you have to decide like, why am I doing this? Like I'm doing this because I have to, you know, because it's, you're not being rewarded very well for it. You're not being compensated. That is, that was true for 10 years for James, Right. 10 years of like being in pony and like sound guying for, you know, that's a verb I've just invented, but you know, sort of his relationship with Juan was forged during that time. I mean, all these major DFA characters come from James's period. A lot of them come from James's, 10 years spent in the nineties, just sort of toiling in obscurity in American indie culture and touring around in crappy bands all over the country. And similarly, Jack had that background of a different version of it. And, you know, Interpol, it's not the same with them exactly again, because the age thing, but they'd been in a band for, I think it's four years before anyone cared. And because they hit later than the Strokes, that's part of that. The Strokes had been in a band for a really long time, too. So I'm not saying it has nothing to do with not earning it or not deserving it. But basically, the first thing they made, as soon as they discovered their own sound, it the world discovered their own sound. I mean, it didn't feel, I'm sure it didn't feel quite as immediate as that to them at the time. But like, those dudes were like 21. Like, Nick was would have been 21 in... 2001, you know, even 20, um, they were really young and it was like, Oh my God, people care. And I don't, it's not about one path being worse or better than the others. It's about the psychology you're describing is related in part. I think to, there is a psychological advantage to having had to struggle in obscurity for a while before anyone cares about what you're doing. And James is a poster child for that. Well, and I think there's also, you know, just responding to these bands as a fan, like there was something about the strokes that I, I mean, I remember seeing them simultaneous with hearing them, like the, like the visual of that Uh band was so important and, you know, they looked great. They were good looking dudes and they looked like a real band. And with LCD sound system in my brain, I almost associate them in a way with like a band like the Hold Steady, for instance, which I feel like kind of comes at it from a different angle where it was like, oh, these these people are connoisseurs who are, have sort of willed themselves into being rock stars. Like they don't, like James Murphy didn't look like Julian Casablancas. He didn't have the looks. He didn't have the leather jacket. He was just this guy that had been toiling for a long time, listening to music, and he could make great sounding records, but he looked like a schlubby guy. He looked like, you know, me or any yeah. of my friends. And that seemed like a real, that's kind of an interesting thing, I think, in New York music at that time. That I think that's really astute. The whole study comparison, I've never fully thought of, but I think that's exactly right. Um, and they have in common, actually, a, a kind of, as Moby puts it in the book, a music as rock journalism approach. Like, Craig right. could be a rock journalist. <laughs> Maybe is, actually. Um, I, I, you know, Craig has all of our jobs, basically. Um <laughs> I think that's really right. And I think there's a, there's also a part in the book where Rob Sheffield talks about here, uh, reading, I guess, an early James Murphy interview in which he's talking about body image, um, and just kind of feeling just sort of openly speaking about sort of an insecurity around that or a sense of exactly just talking out loud about exactly what you're talking about. Like, I don't look like a rock star and like, that's not my thing. And sort of, there's, it's classic, it's James's, it's James 101, which is the thing that you're most insecure about is actually your power. So speak it, you know, it, it can never be overstated that he invented the brand of James Murphy as we know it by talking about being over the hill. You know, that <laughs> should never be lost on anybody. Um, and also to his credit, I think there's also a sense of, he doesn't go so far as to be like, as to want to kind of shit on those bands. It's not like he's like the strokes suck. In fact, the opposite, it's sort of like, 
an awareness of how cool they seemed to him, an awareness of how untouchable that felt is what motivated, is harsh part of what motivated him, him to go and, and, and sort of, as Oprah, he is, this sounds like speak his own truth about things, you know? And I think that's the lesson is, is that you can't lie, you know? And this is what's annoying to people about the strokes is that they were just so effortlessly cool, you know? But I think it's annoying even to them. Like they didn't, I knew those guys, you know, I knew those guys. We were kids together in the, in these village and before they broke out and it's like, they were really cool, but they were like goofballs. I mean, they are, they were and are total. Whenever people ask me about this, which is a lot lately because of the book, I always say, you know, the scene in the book where Albert pulls his balls out to make Fab laugh, like that's them. That is as much that is who they really, if I had to just pick one scene in the book that like described what it was like to hang out with those guys during those years, that's what it was like. They were just like, you know, as Jim Merlis says in the book, a bunch of Holden Caulfields running around New York and they were cool and they were beautiful and girls had crushes on them, but they weren't intimate. They weren't mean or sort of aloof yeah. uh, like that at all. Um, they were not cool, too cool for school. And if you were friends with any member of that band, then you were friends with all of them and they were like a family and they welcomed you with open arms and would like buy you a beer, you know, like they were sweeties. Yeah. I mean, would you call James Murphy a sweetie? Hell no, no way. (laughs) I mean, but in, but I mean, that is a huge, like, that's the point. It's like, that's not, he has been unbelievably gracious and generous to me and to this project, but it will. And he, you know, I would describe him as a, as a kind of, uh, I would describe him as a um, aggressive mensch. <laughs> like he's like he's like to mix both like I don't know some sort of punk term with like my grandmother's you know grandmother speak. Uh, that's him. Like he I do he has a a deeply generous side, but he's also you know he's there he there's an aggressive he's he's intense. That guy's intense. Yeah. Um, I mean, oh, yeah. I, I mean, I feel like the thing now with LCD Sound System, what's become sort of their defining, I guess, event is was this decision uh, to, you know, break up and have a farewell concert and do the documentary and yada, yada, yada. And then five years later, there's a comeback. And everything that gets written about them now talks about this and James Murphy has to address it. I have my own mixed feelings about this personally. But, you know, one thing you talk about in the book or other characters talk about when they talk about Murphy is this sort of self-consciousness that he has. And, mm-hmm. and when you look at the early part of LCD's career, you can see that in a way they did have the perfect sort of record collector's career. Like they had three mm-hmm. great albums, then they decide to end it and with this big concert. Um, I wonder, like, what, what's your take on this whole thing? And, and how, what does this reflect about, I guess, the psychology of James Murphy, that you, to your knowledge anyway, this, this decision to break up and then come back? I mean, what I just, do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, I have no, I have like, I mean, I don't mean, I under, I, I, am ha- I like talking about it, but I also, my first response was to say I have no interest in this, like, which right. is sort of a dickish thing to say, so I don't mean <laughs> it that way. I just mean like, it's like, whatever, Stephen, I don't even care about that question. I don't mean that. I mean like, <laughs> I mean that I don't understand, I don't have the gene, I guess, as a music fan that I need to have in order to get worked up about some sort of betrayal about this. Like, it's been, what has it been? It was April, 2011. I mean, it's been the idea. I just, I find it funny that people seem that the articulation of this is that it was somehow like a plot against the fans. You know, yeah. like, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to host this farewell concert and like, you know, that it somehow was like a kind of mercenary decision. Like I'm going to make a bunch of money doing that. And then I'm going to like, I know that in six years, give or take, I'm going to reunite the band and like, then I'll, and that's it, that it's cynical in some way or pre ordained, pre planned in some way. And I think, you know, people get married and then they get divorced because they meant it when they got married and then it didn't work out. And so they got divorced. Like I just, there's something about the, the, the people, the offense, the sense of like, fuck that guy that I think is weirdly self-serving and almost has to do with this, on the part of the people saying that and almost has to do with this sense of like 
a, a rigorous need, like an almost desperate kind of psychological need on the part of the fans for their rock stars to provide a level of certainty about the world that nothing else could ever provide, you know, that, that, right. that, is, that we don't expect of anything else. And so, I mean, as, as sort of critical as what I just said makes it sound, I also get that. I do get that it's sort of like, we want music, we want art, we want these people that we adore to be kind of above regular life above the vicissitudes of regular life. So when someone says we want certainty, we want certainty from them. But to me, like that pales in comparison to the joy of getting to hear LCD sounds is good again. Like right. I just don't, I don't get the argument. And this is probably my central point that if you're an LCD fan, why are you in favor of them not playing? Right. Well, How let, does that argument work? Let me, let me rephrase that question here. I guess what I mean is like, what, to what degree do you think he's, been able to stage manage the mm. band's career because like when i think about this is happening for instance mm-hmm. you know that record came out before they announced that they were going to break up but when you listen to that yeah. record it sounds like a last record like a lot of the songs are about going home and there's this sort of mm-hmm. like funereal air to that record that it's like oh yeah you it almost seems like a person consciously making a last record and then he it, says it was his plan right he says it was his plan to make three records and then like american dream i don't know if you've heard the new record yet um, i have yeah but you know, american dream it seems very much like a um we haven't made a record in five years and this is us mm-hmm. sort of commenting on the on the contemporary moment type record and not to say right. that it's like contrived or anything but he does seem very aware of where his records place in his discography versus maybe where similar records have placed in other bands' discographies. Does that make sense? That's completely right. But I think, yeah. And so this, like, so, okay. Yes. So what if I say yes to that? So what's the, (laughs) so it's like, why is that bad again? Oh no, it's not a criticism. It's more of just an observation. (laughs) James, you have to, this goes back to the music is journalism thing. I think, and the self-awareness thing, like we're talking about someone Say that you are the biggest rock nerd on the planet and you have spent, you, you can, you, you, your sort of knowledge, your, your scholarship, your, uh, professorial, uh, bona fides in the, in the realm of music are sort of late, are sort of like incomparable. Like say that's true about you. And then you go and form a rock band that becomes like a phenomenon for your generation. That's James's story. So, so the, the, there's no part of him that is making the, the, that, the, the paradigm of like the kind of savant-like artist who just happens to be like the Sid Barrett of the world, who's <laughs> right. just like a genius musician sitting in a kind of, uh, a kind of childlike realm of their own making with almost no actual awareness of the real world who just makes, who delivers these beautiful melodies and is kind of, I don't know, like beyond it all in that way. Like that's a completely different paradigm. And I, I would say though, this is not, uh, this it's nowhere near this extreme, like, but Julian's more on that level. Like Julian is a, visionary in a creative space and i can tell you from experience like those guys were not like rock nerds they weren't when we were teenagers they were not like hey let me play you this king crimson track like no (laughs) they were playing pearl jam you know and lou reed was like as kind of as sort of um uh obscure as it as it got so i think you have to remember about james that like his that's the paradigm he comes from, that other thing. Like, he is a rock nerd first, and then he figured out how to make all of this stuff, but from it, it, it's cerebral in that way. Like, the way I see him is as someone who's in his brain and in his, like, wealth of scholarship about music, and then who knew that music, it's almost like he's David Foster Wallace or something. Like, he knew that music was mattered to him because it took him out of his mind, and, like, in the best way. And so he had studied it, and then found a way to use what he'd learned to sort of circumvent his intellectual brain and get into this place of feeling and beauty, which is why I relate so much to what LCD does, because that's how I feel. Like, I feel like I can really relate to that having come from like my, you know, my father's a philosophy professor. So um, I grew up in that world. So I think the, I think it's possible. This is a long winded way of saying that not only is it possible, but I'd argue it's probably the case that James is, incapable of being non-considered 
that's not really a way <laughs> a word, but about anything he does, like everything is going to be considered. So every record is going to have like a sense of place in the canon of the albums that he's like, he's not capable of not thinking about it as part of, of not making it journalism, of not making it part of the, the sort of like cinematic narrative of his own life and work, because that's the, that's the sort of like tribe he comes from. Like that's the ingrained in his DNA. There's never going to be a haphazard LCD sound system record. But I consider that an advantage because not, I don't mean an advantage to him. I mean, an advantage to us, the fans, because it means that whatever they do has a resonance beyond, yo, it's just another record. Like, how many artists, another way a band would have done this, and this is what you usually see, and this is what I find funny about the criticism, what you usually see is a great band who makes a bunch of records, and then increasingly those records become less and less good, but not in a considered way and not with any kind of plan. And it's, you first you like six tracks on the new album, and then two years later you like three tracks on the new album, and then three years after that you like two tracks on the new album, and then you're just buying the album maybe because you feel a sense of duty. And then we complain about that. And then you go and see their shows and it's just like, well, they never broke up and they never really, but there's no, there's no sense of like structure. It's kind of a flabbiness to how the band has operated and run, run the business of the idea of itself. And what I respect about James in that sense is that he is, is that there's nothing I know that there's nothing else he sounds to him is ever going to do that he hasn't thought probably too much about already. And I appreciate that because I know it's going to have heft to it, even if I don't like it. Yeah. You know? To me, the sweet spot with, with his music and LCD sound system records, when I feel like that they're, that they're at their best is when I hear this really smart, clever guy who can't help but show the emotional guy underneath. Yeah. Like when that, Bingo. when that happens, that's when they're at their best. Cause like, I think some of their, you know, Mark Ronson, I think had a quote in there. He was talking about uh, losing my edge and he was like, it was good, but it's a little too clever. And, yeah. and, I, and I love that song, but I think there's something to that where when he, when he almost gets outside of himself and I, and I feel like there's maybe more of a conscious effort that, like, with that on the new record, the new record seems like it's the most sort of openly emotional record that they've made. I think the reason I bring up, and it's funny you should mention that Ronson quote, because I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, and I love that, that Mark said that. And I also think that Mark, I understand, like, I feel like that's, like, that, that Mark's approach to making, that Mark's background in music is similar to James's. Like, Mark is a very smart guy. And, right. Like, is a record collector, obviously, and, like, knows, is also professorial and, um, sort of deep into the scholarship of music and is, I think, like most of us who come at it from that perspective, ultimately chasing feeling. And so watching one of your sort of fellow, one of your brethren in that, in that paradigm, trying to talk their way into something with whole soul and heart is, at least for me, I can't speak for Mark, but sometimes painful because you're just like, I know it's like really hard to be so brainy all the time, isn't it? Like, and that's how I feel sometimes listening to James. But the reason I bring up David Foster Wallace is that I think that that's what I loved about his fiction. And this is sort of a cross genre nerd moment as if my nerdiness isn't already apparent (laughs) enough. But I think what I loved about Wallace is that he was considered, you know, the sort of the, the ultimate, uh, in terms of pure creative talent of his immediate, kind of class, graduating class of fiction impresarios, right? Like of, of potential greats. Um, and yet all those sort of pyrotechnics that Gen X literary figures of his immediate era were trying to do, like that all these smart books, like these really smart pieces of fiction, like he was using his skills, his, he was sort of, you could say, like smarter or capable of being smarter on the page than everybody else but he was using those skills to try to get out of his brain, to try to like use, use the very thing that's torturing you to, to, uh, to lead you to, to transcend intellectualism, use the intellect to transcend intellectualism. And I think that is a, that's a Murphyism, you know? Um, and maybe it's also a pretty, I mean, he is a producer, like he's a producer and a lot of producers I know, I know a lot of them now. And I mean, I would say like Dave Siddick is this 
is like this. I would say Ronson is like this. Like there's a sense of you are using your incredible technical knowledge to try to transcend technique to make something that breathes and bleeds and loves, you know? And so I think that's something that's, that's the, that's the sort of, uh, the archetype that I think James fits into. Well, I know you got to get going here. There's probably like 27 other podcasts that want to talk to you right now, but before I, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> before I let you go, I just want to, what do you think of the new record American dream? You said you heard it. I love it. I do. Yeah, I've heard it. I mean, I've only, I haven't, I can't say as, as annoying rock critics say, I haven't spent that much time with it. Um, <laughs> Which is like so obnoxious. So well, let's uh, pretend I didn't even say that. But I, I no, I, I agree with you. My initial read is um, in keeping with what you're saying. Like I think it is. I, I think, and this is why I defend him, and also why I'm grateful for. I mean, I love LCD Sound System. So when they have something to say about where we are culturally, like that, also might make me feel. I really want to. I want to give them the chance to do that. And I saw. I haven't. What I can speak to more with more sort of like uh, certainty than, than my opinion on the record is my opinion on what it feels like to hear them play right now. Because I saw two, I saw them play whenever it was like a couple months ago, I saw them play at Brooklyn steel twice, both runs kind of leading up to the first singles coming out. And it was just, I mean, anytime you're doubting whether that guy or that band is, uh, is too in its own head, just go see them play. I mean, it was, totally transcendent like I am it was like meditation it was like I am 100% here being sort of like affected on every level physically emotionally you know spiritually by the sound that's coming at me from this I don't know machine this like and I mean that in the best way and so just the fact that I get a chance to go and participate in that to like sit in that again for the next however long they're on tour makes me grateful that the record exists. <laughs> Whatever excuse we needed to get there, I'm happy about. Lizzie, thank you so much for coming on. I'm glad we finally made this happen. You were a great guest. I hope to have you back on again soon. Me too. Anytime. I love talking to you about all this stuff and, uh, you know, thanks for having me. Yeah. And by the way, if you haven't gotten it yet, I don't know why you don't have it yet, but you should have it. Meet <laughs> me in the bathroom. Lizzie Goodman's oral history of, uh, 2000s New York rock. It's an essential book. It's the book, the rock book of 2017. Uh, if you heard it here first, or you probably heard it many other times, but <laughs> Lizzie, thank you so much and uh, take care. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Speak soon. All right. Lizzie Goodman. Isn't she a great guest? I mean, all my guests are great. I'm appreciative of anyone that comes on this podcast, but Lizzie Goodman, smart person, knows what she's talking about. Lots of insightful things to say. I'm really grateful that she uh, made some time for us uh, to be on the podcast. I'm also grateful to you guys for listening to this week's episode. I say this every week, but I mean it. We would not have a show without your support. So thank you for listening. Thank you for talking about us on social media. Thanks for leaving us reviews on iTunes or, or just telling a friend about us, encouraging them to check out the podcast. All these things make it possible for us to do the show every week. So thank you so much for that. Um, also want to give a shout out to our sponsors for this week, the, our friends at Harry's and SeatGeek. Definitely check those out. Let them know that Celebration Rock Pod listeners support Celebration Rock Pod sponsors. Okay, guys, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, we will get back to you uh, next week. <laughs>